So with that, um, let's get into the passage. We're going to pray. We're in Matthew 27, verse 27. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Lord, I thank you for Matthew's account um, about Jesus. I thank you for his concern and his detail to fulfilling prophecy, to showing that Jesus uh, fulfilled every prophecy that was given concerning this Messiah that would come. And that the Jewish reader would see that this isn't a scam, this isn't something phony. We thank you as the most of us who are Gentiles who have been grafted in. We thank you, Lord, uh, for what Christ did for us. Lord, as we look at this passage today, we focus on the cross, the jugular vein of Christianity. And it's not a pretty sight. It's not a funny sight. It's, it's, it's heaviness. But it is the most important thing for us to to contemplate. And so, Lord, I pray that the, the scene of the crucifixion would come alive for us today. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand deep theological term, terms like substitutionary atonement, that Christ stood in our place, propitiation, that Christ work on the cross, satisfied the wrath of God that was due us. That by faith in him, we can stand before you reconciled. His righteousness imputed to us that our account has been credited in full and there's no longer a barrier between us and you. Lord, help us to understand these great truths. May our lives be transformed. May our minds be renewed day by day. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put, it, put his own garments back on him. And led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon. Whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. 
And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that your spirit would guide us and lead us this day. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, this is a passage that's a it's a heavy passage. Um, if you guys have come to this church long enough, you know I'm a person who enjoys laughing. I enjoy telling stories. I, 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 I think the Bible's filled with all sorts of great stories that can make us laugh and, and can sort of bring smiles to our faces. Um, this is a story, however, that, um, that's heavy. And, and there's not really room for me to sort of tell funny illustrations to sort of highlight it. And so um, I, I want the weight of the cross to, to press down upon us. I, I want us to feel the heaviness of what's happening here. Um, this is the jugular vein of Christianity. This is what substitutes all other religions from Christianity. This is an item that you cannot remove from the gospel. Christ crucified is central in this act that we're looking at today. And he doesn't die in our passage. We're just leading towards his death next week. There are huge legal sort of theological terms that we're dealing with. Things like substitutionary atonement that that Christ on the cross, he was a substitute for me. He was a substitute for you. Uh, t- terms like propitiation, which the Bible talks about, which is a, a, a huge word that means that, that God's wrath on the cross on Christ satisfied the wrath of God so that in Christ we could stand before God complete. Uh, another big word is impute like to impute something, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to our accounts if you've come to Christ in faith. That, that means that when, if you've come to Christ in faith, when God looks at you, what he sees is Christ's righteousness has been credited to your account. Your sinfulness was imputed to Christ's account and he paid the debt that was due you. And in him, we've been reconciled to the idea of a, a checkbook. If you, you know, the three of us that, re, that reconcile our checkbooks, <laughs> like I do. And <laughs> Debbie, my bookkeeper, is all 
we encourage each other. It's a good thing to do. And it, it, that, that you have a debt. And Christ, that debt has been reconciled by his blood that we can stand before him complete, paid in full. He, he, he paid our debt at, not in part, but in full, as the old hymn says. So we come to the story. We, by way of review, we remember that it started with the Jewish trial, if we can call it that. Jesus was betrayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, they took him into custody. They, they whisked him away to the high priest Annas' house. Um, he was there for a short while. Um, while he was there, essentially, they were assembling a group of people um, over at the other high priest house, Caiaphas, who was the sort of the, the high priest that was appointed by Rome um, to function in sort of a legal sense. Annas was the true high priest, of, of Israel, but Caiaphas was the son-in-law of, of Annas. And so Annas is trial number one, but it was really more of a holding tank. Then they transfer him over to Caiaphas. They go to Caiaphas. They're trying to find charges. Eventually, uh, the high priest asked Jesus a question that was worded in a legal way that Jesus could answer very precisely. And his answer essentially said, it is as you say, I am the son of God, I'm the Messiah. And while I stand in judgment of you today, a day is coming when you're going to stand in my judgment in heaven. And at that point, the, the priest tears his robe. He screams out, we don't even need witnesses anymore. We have everybody here. He said he's God. This is blasphemy. And so as the sun came up, they had, uh, according to their law, even though they were violating so many laws every which way, they... Um, they got to the place where the sun came up and before the Sanhedrin, they, 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 they pressed the formal charges, they condemned him to death, and then they transferred him over to the Roman court, which was Pontius Pilate. And so as he went to Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate realizes that he has a sort of a, a, a riot is, is, is exploding before his eyes. As he interviews Jesus in private because the Jews didn't want to come into the praetorium because they didn't want to defile themselves because it was the Passover, he begins pressing Jesus, asking him questions. He finds no uh, guilt in Jesus. Remember, the Jews had condemned Jesus for claiming to be God. The Romans wouldn't have cared about that. So when they brought Jesus to Pilate, they said he's an insurrectionist. He tells the people not to pay taxes. And of all things, he says he's a king. And we know that Caesar's the only king. And so they're trying to get him condemned in a way that the Romans would actually care about. The Romans wouldn't, for claiming to be God, the Romans would say, just get away, get, just leave us alone. And so they get Jesus. In the discussion, it, and they're trying to make their case they bring up the fact that Jesus had been sort of stirring the pot from the northern region of Israel up in the Galilee region all the way down to the Judea region of Jerusalem. When Pilate hears this, he's like, ah, there's my out. I, I can get rid of this hot potato. For Herod, who's the governor of the northern regions in town, I can send Jesus to him. I hate Herod. And if the whole riot breaks out and everything falls apart, so be it. It's Herod that will get in trouble. My hands are clean. Well, Jesus isn't over there for too long before Herod sends him back. Herod sends him back. Pilate begins desperately sort of interviewing Jesus, asking him any, anything to get him out of this. And Jesus says, listen, every, all authority that you have has been given to, 
to you by my father. Um, And so Pilate comes up with this plan. Three prisoners were to be executed that day. And so he takes the worst of the three, Barabbas, who who was actually an insurrectionist, whose name was the same as Jesus. His name is Jesus Barabbas, which means uh, Jesus and basically son of a father. I don't want to rehash all last week's sermon, so I'm trying to cut myself short here. He says, who do you guys, I have a tradition. On Passover, I released one of the criminals. Who do do you want me to release to you, this, this criminal, this guy who's murdered a bunch of people, who's an insurrectionist, who does all these things? Or do you want me to release to you Jesus? thinking there's no way they're going to want this hardened terrorist to be released. But it's a mob mentality, so they release Barabbas. They take Jesus back, and he scourge him. And scourging, you would have been tied to a post like this with no clothes on. They would have had whips. At the end of the whips, there would be bones and, and metal and anything that could tear into the flesh. So as they whipped the criminal... It would get stuck in their back, and when they pulled it back, it would rip out the flesh of their back, and their back would get absolutely lacerated. A lot of people would die from this process, from the shock and trauma of it all. So they beat Jesus in the back by scourging him. Pilate then brings Jesus out before the people, thinking possibly if they'd seen what he'd done to Jesus, that the people would have some mercy towards Jesus. But they didn't. They kept screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. This culture was brutal. There's a historian, Garrett Fagan, who sort of summarizes uh, sort of the philosophy of life, the value of the Romans during this era, era. I said it right the first time. He writes, Ideas of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent. And large swaths of the population were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion but of derision. More than most, Romans lionized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over obedience. Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved. And resistors were to be ruthlessly handled, Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers. The drive to dominate and not to be forced to bow before a rival was paramount. And so while we can't, I don't think in our culture we can even begin to fathom the brutality of the cross, but this was a culture that was so violent and so extreme that this is what Jesus is under. In fact, when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, Mel Gibson wanted to sort of to portray the crucifixion as accurately as he could. And so when they went through all the scenes of filming it, when it, whoever the board is that gives the rating of movies, they said if he released it at, at the level that he wanted to release it, they'd have to give it like an NC-17 rating, which meant that no individual under the age of 18 could see the movie because it was too horrible. And so then they toned down the crucifixion scene, the scourging scene, uh, to get it to rated R. But, 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 but the violence of this, we just, it's, it's mind-boggling to us. Today, you know, Grace comes to the first service, and I like... 
So I like, kind of like, hey, Grace, you know, today we're going like, to, she's like, is it going to be PG-13? I'm like, well, it's the cross, and I like have to share some stuff. And so the, the cross is not a beautiful, this, it's not some, I mean, we wear it as jewelry, as some like keepsake, you know, makes you feel good, but this is not at all. The cross was the most brutal form of execution that I think our world probably has ever seen. And so here we begin, we enter it in verse 27. We're told the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. So it's important for us, as we work slowly through the story, it's easy for our brains to sort of reset. It's easy for us to come to this scene imagining Jesus sort of unbeaten, sort of he starts fresh. Uh, but this is beating after beating after beating. There, there's no resetting. Jesus' beating started in the Garden of Gethsemane when they took him into custody. At Annas' place, they, they, they did some beating on him. At Caiaphas' place, they did some beating on him. And with Pilate, did all sorts of beating and then also a scourging. So at this point, Jesus is mangled, bloodied up. You have fresh blood over caked up blood, bruising. This is a brutal, brutal scene. The prisoner is now condemned. Historically, we know that uh, the Roman soldiers had a, had a bunch of games that they would play with prisoners just to sort of entertain themselves. And so now Jesus is brought back into the praetorium. We're told with a cohort. Now, a cohort was 600 soldiers. We don't know if Matthew is speaking in sort of a, a literal sense, uh, referring to like, oh, they did a head count and there's 600 individuals because that's what a cohort was. Or did he mean this was like a section of the cohort? Like it, 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 at very minimum, there's two to 300 men that are about to play this game of mocking and beating and ridiculing Christ. I don't know if it's because of um, the, the movie Risen that we're showing. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but the, the sort of the idea of following a Roman soldier through the crucifixion process has my mind sort of pondering. But I've, it, it's been on my mind that this whole scene that Matthew's giving an account of, the only Jew that was present during the scene that we're about to read was Jesus. Everybody else is a Roman. So how did Matthew get this information? We know from Luke twenty three forty seven that at the foot of the cross at Jesus' death, there was a centurion who basically, when he saw Jesus die and he saw basically the, the sky darken, the veil was torn, he basically acknowledges like, oh man, this is the son of God. And, and so the thought is that during this brutal scene, one of these soldiers or a couple of these soldiers came to faith in Christ. And a thought, like, did, what a beautiful thought to think that an ugly part of your life could end up becoming a beautiful picture of the redemption story of, of God's story in your life or, or in, in his story of redemption as a whole. That, that this information we had likely came from one of these soldiers who was beating on Jesus that would share what happened after he came to faith. And it's a, it's a wonderful picture of God's forgiveness and his while they're beating on Jesus, we know that, you know, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. 
And the tense of that statement, it was an ongoing statement that throughout this process, you could make a case that throughout this whole beating, Jesus was sort of repeating over and over and over again, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And so they stripped him the game. And they put a scarlet robe on him. Now, remember, they've, they've already up to this point, they've removed Jesus' clothing. They've placed it back on. They've removed it. They've placed it back on. For you and me, that's no big deal. Doesn't hurt to take on and off your clothing. But to a man who's had his back lacerated, that the body in its healing process, the blood starts coagulating. And then you have a cloth put on it. It's sort of when you have a bandage over a wound, it's like, oh, I don't want to rip the bandaid off because it, it, it will reopen things. A lot of times in a, in a combat sort of trauma situation where you have a guy that's bleeding, you're told not to remove the bandage, you're just told to add to the bandage. Boy Scout's nodding right here. I have the Eagle Scout too. He's nodding. You don't take it off because it reopens everything. So you just keep adding to it. But they're ripping off the. I mean, they're, I mean, they're taking off the clothing, reopening the wounds, reaggravating things. They twist together a crown of thorns and they put it onto his head. They put a reed, sort of a king has a scepter, and so they put the scepter in his hands. They knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the, the reed and began to beat him on the head. I, uh, in between services, I had to run back to the computer to print out a song that came to my head during this whole thing. So during this whole process, they're all, from the soldiers to passerbyers to the priests, they're, they're mocking Jesus. They're making fun of him. They think that they have the upper hand. And throughout this week, I don't know why it is, but I've had a song stuck in my head. And I kind of like his music, but Johnny Cash, I'll say it openly. One of his songs has been in my head this whole week, sort of like thinking about this scene of this brutalness. There's that song that uh, God's going to cut you down. You know, Johnny Cash came to Christ and he's, I don't know what, I, I think this song had to have been written after he converted. And so it's, you know, I'm not a musician, nor do I have rhythm, nor do I have tone. I love clapping. Our church is terrible at clapping, but I don't have the confidence to like help us along. <laughs> but, but, but there's a line in this song and it's talking about, so when he said, John, go and do my will, go tell the long-tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him God's going to cut him down. Tell him that God's going to cut him down. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. Well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, white, What's done in the dark will be brought to the light. So these guys are hurling abuses, but a day will come when they will stand before Christ. Paul writes about this in Philippians 2.10 and 11. It says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are on earth, under the earth, so that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So as these guys are bending their knees saying, Hail you, Lord Jesus. 
all of them will bow. Some of them will bow in faith as true Lord. Others will bow as they're being cast into hell in rejection. You might be able to mock Jesus for a little bit in this lifetime, but a day will come when you'll stand before him and it'll be too late to change your posture. And here they are. They're beating him ruthlessly. ruthlessly. Verse 31, after they'd mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his clothes back on him and led him away to crucify him. Their game was complete. It was time to begin the crucifying process. They would lead him on the longest route through Jerusalem. And the purpose um, was there were many reasons why they would take a long route. A prisoner would carry a crossbeam that weighed between 75 and 100 pounds. And as they walked through the streets, zigzagging through the city, Rome said that carrying the crossbeam, number one, if you were actually carrying your form of execution, in one sense, you were acknowledging to the world that Rome was correct and you were wrong and this punishment that you're about to receive is justified. So much so that you're walking yourself to the place of punishment um, and advertised what happened to criminals. So as they're walking the crossbeam, there would be a, a, a crier that would be announcing why this individual was being crucified. There would be an, an individual carrying a, a document that said his charges. In Jesus' case, this is that, that the document that said, Jesus, King of the Jews. But, but for others, it could have said murderer, rapist, whatever the crime was, it would be on that piece of paper and they would tack it on top of the cross so that all who entered the town would see what happened. And if you were to commit any crime, this is what would happen to you. This this carrying process was torture in its own right. Jesus had a scourging. He's not going to make the journey. Um, he struggled with it, and this is how we come to verse twenty-two. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service of his cross. So, so clearly, Jesus's body is sort of in shock. Um, he's been so badly beaten that he, he can't make the journey to his place of execution. The Roman soldiers, it's, it's a holiday weekend. They want to get on with their weekend. They, we need to speed things along. Hey, you, this guy, Simon, he, he sort of take it into custody. And they say, you need to carry the crossbeam for this guy. Now, it's believed that Simon, through this encounter, became a Christian, became a follower of Christ, he has two sons that are mentioned in Mark, uh, Alexander and Rufus, and Rufus is also mentioned in, in, uh, in Romans. We know that Serene was a, a, an area, it's modern-day Libya, but it had a huge Jewish population. And so these, these individuals were in Jerusalem, clearly for the Passover, celebrating. And so Rufus helps him make his way to the to the place of execution, verse 33. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which you could also translate Calvary, which I always, my Calvary Chapel buddies, they say, you guys are really the skull chapel. You guys could have, you know, skull and crossbones as your logo. It'd be way cooler because that's what it actually is. I like the word Golgotha just because it sounds sort of spooky. It kind of like fits the description. 
which means the place of the skull. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. After tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Many people say, oh, he didn't take it because he didn't want to numb what he was experiencing, this cup he was drinking. Uh, behind me is a, is, a, is a wall, sort of a cliff. I don't know, a cliff, a wall. Outside of the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem, if you've been to Jerusalem or you plan to go with our next trip that we're taking in two years or less than two years, if you want to go, start saving your money. Um, but around this time next year, we'll make deposits and start getting the ball rolling. Um, when you get to the garden tomb, uh, we, we don't know where Jesus was buried, but there's, there's strong evidence that the garden tomb fits everything. You walk to the edge of the garden tomb and you look out, and to the right is, is the gate of Damascus. In front of you is a bus stop and just a really just a busy place, um, a main thoroughfare. And to the left, you'll see this cliff. And, and likely, I, I, I believe that Jesus was buried at the, at the base of this cliff. And if you look at the cliff, you see the two black dots and the thing. It kind of looks like a skull if you're looking at it. So the place of the school, they didn't nail it. Like the Places get their names by what they see. You know, you, you have potato chip rock. Poway did a great April Fool's Day yesterday. They said that it broke and that it was under repair, and everybody's freaking out that potato chip rock in San Diego broke, but it was just a big joke. Well, actually, this one, the nose, not an April Fool's. Two years ago or whenever, when they had all the snows in Jerusalem, the weight of the snow popped off the nose. So, But you can still sort of make it out. Um, it would have been an ideal spot for a crucifixion. You know, we have these paintings of the crosses. If you Google, oh, Calvary, you'll see a beautiful sunset, a nice flowing grassy hill up on the hill. You know, there's three crosses, beautiful place to die, you know, just to catch in the sunset and the fine views. But but that's not how it happened. The, the, the cross was done in a prominent place where people could walk by, hurl insults at you. Um, not on top of a mountain, but at the base of the mountain, the place of Golgotha. Uh, and when they crucified him, verse 35, to crucify somebody, what they would do is he'd be stripped of all of his clothing. Everything would be taken off. I, I have no problems with the, 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 the Catholic crucifix. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I know Protestants have a really hard time with the crucifix because Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. But Jesus was on the cross, and it's significant. But I remember in my childhood always seeing him being up there, and he'd have like a little like loincloth covering his privates. But they do that to keep it rated G. The reality, he was stripped naked. All criminals were stripped naked when they were crucified. Um, as they did this, it would open up the wounds. He would have been thrown down onto the ground, his back on the long crossbeam, um, they would have placed nails, like more like railroad ties, through the wrists. Sometimes people say through the hands, but the hands they would never do because if you put a railroad tie between the two bones here, it'll simply slip out. But if you put through the wrist, you can't slip out. On the feet, they would put the feet together and they would nail through the feet. On the feet, they weren't worried about you slipping up and out. The pressure was going down. As they put you down and they nailed you to the thing, they would roughly put the crossbeam in place and tie it together. The wood was not finished. It was rough, jagged. Um, 
they weren't concerned about your well-being of the cross. Above his head, the charges, whatever the criminal was uh, being charged with, they would place it above the head. And then eventually the whole cross would be sort of lifted up and then dropped into place in the ground. It was an uh, excruciating is a good word to use. It was actually excruciating. The word excruciating that we have today, it came from the word crucifixion. Maybe next time you think, see the word, oh, I have an excruciating whatever, think about the cross. Where did the cross come from? It was the Persians that invented crucifixion. Their god was the, the god Hormuz. So if you've ever been to the Middle East and you took a boat there in the military, you went through the Straits of Hormuz. Um, that's the same word. It was the, the god of the earth. And so the Persians, when they executed a criminal, they didn't want to place the individual where their god was. And so they came up with the crucifixion as a form to execute somebody off the ground where their god was. Now, the Romans later borrowed it, and they refined it, and they, um, they perfected it. They reserved it for the worst of the worst of all criminals. A Roman citizen could not be executed um, by, by means of, of crucifixion. The only exception was if Caesar gave a waiver. Caesar could waiver a Roman citizen uh, to be executed by the cross because of its brutality. Uh, there was a doctor in 1986, Dr. William Edwards, who wrote an article in the Journal of American Medical, the Journal of American Medical Association, sort of from a medical perspective, explaining uh, what happened during the crucifixion process. This is what he wrote: The victim's back was first torn over, torn open by the scourging then opened again as the congealing, clotting blood came off with the clothing that was removed at the place of crucifixion. When thrown on the ground to nail the hands to the crossbeam, the wounds were again opened, deepened, and contaminated with dirt. With each breath attached to the upright cross, the painful wounds on the back scraped against the rough wood of the upright beam and were further aggravated. Driving the nail through the wrist severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve produced bolts of fiery pain in both arms and often resulted in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Beyond the severe pain, the major effect of crucifixion inhibited normal breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to lock respiratory muscles in an inhalation state, thus hindering exhalation. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, which hindered breathing even further. To get a good breath, one had to push up against the feet and flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders. Putting the weight of the body on the feet produced more pain, and flexing the elbows twisted the hands hanging on the nails. Lifting the body for a breath also painfully scraped the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. Not uncommonly, insects would lie upon or burrow into the open wounds of the eyes, ears, and nose of a dying, helpless victim. 
and birds of prey would tear at these sites. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. Death from crucifixion could come from many sources. Acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, or a congestive heart failure leading to cardiac rupture. If the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken and the victim was soon unable to breathe. This is a horrific way to die. And I think Matthew points out that they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots to remind us that Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Psalm 22 is a great psalm. It'll be quoted later in this. It's one of those messianic psalms. In Psalm 22, we read, They divide up my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So this is yet another prophecy at the cross that was fulfilled. You know, I see those bumper stickers, remember, never forget. We associate that with, with uh, you know, the attacks on 9-11 with Pearl Harbor. As we're going through the crucifixion story, if we have the bumper sticker, never forget in our minds, we, we, we can't lose sight that this crucifixion, this sacrificial death was all a part of God's plan. Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verse 17 says this. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So as he's hanging there, as his life is going out from him, This is Jesus doing this on his own initiative, doing this for you and for me so that we might have life in him. We're told that in verse 36 that they began to keep watch over him there. This whole scene, Matthew doesn't really expand upon. We don't have time to sort of uncover it, but we know that from the cross, Jesus begins talking to his disciples. He tells John, like, hey, well, he doesn't use his hands to point, but he looks at his mom and he says, that's my mom. He looks at John, he says, today she's become your mom. You take care of her. They're hurling insults as, 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 as people are passing by, they're, they're mocking him. We're told that above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In John chapter 19, there's a funny exchange, or I think it's funny. But in some ways, this is Pilate sort of pushing back on the Jews as they put above him in the three different languages. Um, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. The, the priests and the Sadducees, they start pushing back and they say, no, 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 no. Put on there that he claimed that he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate says, guys, what I've written, I've written. Get on. He's the King of the Jews. I think he knew. And at that time, two robbers, verse 38, were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Jesus, remember, was in the place of Barabbas. 
He was in the place of Barabbas. He was in your place. He was in my place. He stood there as a substitutionary atonement for us. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also with their scribes and elders mocking him, saying, he saves others. He cannot save himself. He is king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And all I hear is, God's going to cut you down. (laughs) Mock now, boys. They've stood before their creator, and they now see who Jesus is. Every knee will bow. And Matthew inserts verse 43. It's fascinating. It's a quote from uh, uh, Psalm 22, verse 8. He's showing another prophecy. As they're mocking him, they're actually fulfilling prophecy which says he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Uh, The New American Commentary says this, verse 43 is unique to his gospel and reflects his emphasis on the son of God. Also alluding to Psalm 22, 9, Jesus's opponents unwittingly testify to his identity. Precisely because Jesus is the son of God, he consciously decides not to come down off the cross. Now, Mounts, who is a Greek grammarian, he says this, which is fascinating. I I mean, it's not fascinating, it's beautiful. He writes, it was the power of love, not nails, that kept him there. It's beautiful. Matthew then continues in verse 44, the, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him. With the same words this week, as I was studying and reading this, I'm like, wait, 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 we, we all know. Remember, there's one criminal who says, you know, have mercy on me. He, he starts going against the other guy and says, hey, we deserve to be here. He doesn't deserve to be here. And, and there's a whole exchange between Jesus and this criminal. And Jesus says, today, you'll see me in paradise. You'll see you'll be in paradise today. But Matthew includes none of this. And it's like, what's going on? All the commentators, what they suggest is that Matthew is highlighting the cross, highlighting the torture, highlighting the mockery that's being thrust upon Jesus, and he doesn't want to distract from it by saying that one of these criminals through the day eventually had a change of heart and a change of mind and sort of repented and changed his stance towards Jesus. This this whole passage, you know, we leave with Jesus next week. We're coming to his death next week. So there's this sort of pause in the middle of this, the pause in the, the, the weightiness of this story. This is the jugular vein of Christianity. I've said that multiple times. This is the essence. We have a Savior that stood in our place we need to understand that we need to be reminded that when he died there, what he was going through, this is what our sin requires. We need to understand how horrible, how disgusting our sin is before God. If you're having a hard time seeing that you don't understand how holy and righteous that God is. This, this whole week meditating on this, I've had a rough week, you know, not, not a rough week, but my, you know, I've been, I've shared with you guys, I've been helping my dad sort of move and, you know, my dad's health is, I mean, he's 82, he's doing okay, but he's moving into assisted living, but I'm having to clean up all of his stuff and, 
And this week I'm like wrestling with like emotions of like I'm telling my, my dad's fine. He didn't die, but I'm having feelings like I'm dealing with the death of my dad as I'm sort of going through his stuff and throwing stuff away and donating stuff and kind of really, and I've just been, you know, like this is important because Ecclesiastes 7 talks about that it's better to be in the house of mourning than in, than, than in a, a house of feasting because it, it forces every individual to sort of consider themselves. And as I'm sort of transitioning my dad and bringing my kids over to check out his new place and, and uh, I, I'm remembering as a little kid going to visit my grandpa. And it's kind of like, oh, man, I'm getting like, like I'm getting one notch closer to being just sort of taking over that place. And I know like as I'm looking at my kids, I was like, you remember all the stuff that I'm doing with dad right, or grandpa right now? Your day's coming. Don't forget what I'm doing now because you're going to be up. And, and, and wrestling with like what life and death and, like, like because we, we have eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes tells us. So when we face these things, it, 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 it's to grapple with these truths. And for me, like, see, like the reality that Christ on the cross, when he died, it was for me, it was sufficient. In him, I don't have to fear God at my death. I am secure in him. You know, the song in Christ alone, I think during this, we, we did it in different orders, but I think we're doing it to close at this service. Or no, no, we did it during the offering part. There's a line in that song, and it caught my attention through a couple of the other songs that we sang, the word wrath. There's this, it, it, uh, till on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied it is a huge theological term that this song mentions. It's propitiation, which is mentioned in 1 John 2.2. It's a legal term that as the wrath of God was being poured out on Christ, as he was absorbing the weight of all of our sin, propitiation says that, that the wrath of God was satisfied, that it was complete, that our forgiveness is full. As the one hymn writes, our sin was paid in full, not in part. And a couple of years ago, PCUSA, it was in 2013, as they were redoing their hymnal, not that this is a newer song, it's not, but they, I guess they have a hymnal with new, all their songs. And there was a big stink that they didn't like this line that the wrath of God was satisfied and they wanted to change it to, I think it was like the love of God was magnified or something that rhymes with satisfied, sort of getting rid of the wrath of God. They didn't think it was very appealing to our generation. And so they wrote or they made contact with the authors of the song and they said, we would like to put this in our hymnal and we want to change this, this one line about the wrath of God has been satisfied. Are you guys okay with that? And the writers of the song said, absolutely not. You cannot change that line. That is a huge theological truth that we don't care what our generation thinks about it. It's biblical. Good for them. But this, this song is no longer in their hymnal. But it's critical. We need to understand our sin. We need to understand how bad it is. We need to understand that, that Christ being the ultimate lamb on, on, the, on the cross, that, that his atonement... He was our substitutionary atonement, that he stood there in our place. We, we need to understand 
that through him, the wrath of God has been satisfied, that in faith in him, we've been reconciled to God. That his righteousness has been imputed to our account. It was a couple of years ago. I've shared this story a couple of times, and sorry, this is one, but it was a really good day. I remember on my credit card fraud happened. Somebody bought a, a, a thousand dollar ticket from to Europe, and I remember seeing on my credit card. I'm like, did I did I buy a ticket to Europe? And I just don't remember it. Like, so I like went over to Anna. I said, did, did I buy a ticket to Europe for anything? She's like, did we? We're going to Europe? And I'm like, I did, did. Have you heard about this before? And she's like, no, no, no. And, I, and so then I called the bank and I say, hey, you know, somebody, uh, they're like, oh, you're not going from Brussels to so-and-so? I'm like, I wish, but I'm not. Like, and so they said, okay. They, and so they credited my account. And then later the other organization, the airline, called me. Or I forget, I think first the airline credited my account. And then talking to the bank, they were talking and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll credit your account. And I said, well, just so you know, the airline credited the account. And they're like, oh, okay. I'm like, but I'm okay with you guys double crediting my account, like because I think they did, and I'm like, and I'm like, if it's a hassle for you, you can just leave that money there. And they're like, no, 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 we want our money back. But that's what imputation is. It's like, it's not money; it's righteousness that's placed on your account that you don't deserve. It would be like opening up your bank statement, and there's a hundred thousand dollars there, or probably like a million dollars, and you have no idea where this came from. But somebody, it just appears. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything. That's what, that's what Christ's work on the cross did for us. His righteousness was imputed to our account, and our sin was placed upon him. It's not what we can do for ourselves. It's what Christ did for us. It's everything, and he received this by believing. It's that simple, but it's profound. So, Father, we come before you. And as we, you know, it's not just because of Easter approaching, it's because it's your word and we've been going through it. And every day we should wrestle with these things. And But Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We ask that you would give us greater insight into the magnitude of our sin and its vileness to you we ask that you would give us insight to your holiness and the great separation that exists between us father help us to understand clearly that what christ did on the cross was complete he didn't pay for the sin of the world in part and that there's a little bit for us to bridge but that he covered it all. And we receive this reconciliation simply by believing, trusting in him. That our salvation is a gift that came at a great expense. Father, I pray that this truth would drive us day in and day out. You paid it all. All to you we owe. Love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.